Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com with the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level. With Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. Nature grows them and you go get them, right? So that's foraging. But in a way, fishing is foraging, hunting is foraging. If you look, this concept of foraging is all around us. Welcome to From Scratch. My name's Michael Ruhlman, and I've spent the last 20 years in professional kitchens, writing about and with the world's best chefs. From Scratch is a podcast about cooking. In this episode, we'll talk with one chef and two non-chefs about the same theme. The great thing about the cooking life is that you never stop learning. In this show, I want to go to the edges of what I know and then go beyond, together with you, with all chefs, home cooks, and everyone who cares about food and cooking. Today's theme is foraging. In this episode, we speak with three foragers, a farmer in Newburgh, New York, a chef in San Francisco who personally forages for his restaurant, and a medical doctor who has committed his research and his medical practice to the study of plants and their culinary and medicinal uses. In 1997, Chef Jean-Georges von Gerichten opened his eponymous restaurant in Manhattan, which received four stars from the New York Times upon opening. His mandate in opening any new restaurant in New York City is to give people something new. One of those new things he did in the mid-1990s was to find a forager, a farmer and purveyor who could scour the fields and hills of the Hudson Valley for as many of the natural roots and shoots and leaves that he could use in his kitchen and serve to his customers. 
The person he found was Nancy McNamara, the daughter of the farmers of Jacksbury Farm. Von Gerichten would bring to the United States a French forager named Francois Couplin, who had worked with Michelin-starred chefs Michel Bras and Marc Verat. Couplin knew that this part of America grew one of the most diverse ecosystems of edible foods in the world. He helped to train Nancy, already a natural forager, in the myriad plants that grew naturally throughout the northeastern United States. When Jean-Georges opened, all kinds of weeds and ground cover would be on his menu. Wood sorrel and mugwort, sassafras, ground ivy, nettles, chickweed, yarrow, amaranth, lamb's quarters, the seeds of Queen Anne's lace, and mustard garlic. This, Jean-Georges told me, was unexplored territory in American restaurants at the time. Foraging wasn't new. It was how humans have been surviving for millennia. But in our modern system of food production, we have largely forgotten the richness that grows all around us. Here was the beginning then, not of foraging, but rather the use of foraging by four-star restaurants that would, 20 years later, find its greatest and most famous forager, René Redzepi of Noma in Copenhagen, who would take foraging to its farthest extremes so far. How did I get here? By Matthew Agarino, yes. That's um, Matthew Acarino of SPQR, a Michelin-starred Italian restaurant in San Francisco, and a veteran of some of the finest Michelin-starred restaurants in America and Italy. But this was only after he had to give up his dream of becoming a world-class cyclist. My, my best friend's father was a big fan of sort of classic, you know, there's some classic Fausto Coppi and Eddie Merckx and all these Tour de France kind of greats. And at the time, he would literally rustle us out of bed if, you know, at like three in the morning. And that's when Tour de France coverage was on. Back then, I'm in third grade or something and say, you got to get up and watch this. And we watched this half an hour coverage of Tour de France. It was just snippets of whatever was going on. So, but back then, we're getting told, you know, and he was literally telling us the stories of how Eddie Merckx won the Tour de France and all these things. So you're just being indoctrinated. And mm -hmm. then he says, let's go for a bike ride. I'm like, okay, well, let's, we're going to go for a bike ride. He takes us on his, his, you know, fancy Italian handmade bike. I'm on my BMX bike, and he takes us for an 18-mile bike ride, and I literally thought I would die. Um, but I was hooked. And so he was an active cyclist as a youth with genuine aspirations of turning pro. But that came to an abrupt and shocking halt. You know, who thinks a Frisbee accident is going to change their life? But I had a, had a bone tumor in my right leg. It was That's a, how they discovered it? It was birth. Well, so it was a birth. At birth, I have a void in my right femur. As I get taller and older, this void grows longer. Think of it as like an egg that gets bigger. And so, yeah, here I am racing bikes in criteriums, which is fast races around basically four corner courses, more or less crashing into telephone poles, all kinds of, I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen. And, you know, it's, it's a Frisbee game, running down a hill, jump up, catch a Frisbee and, and land on my right foot and oh, have my leg just go out from under me. And, and I, and I kind of, I didn't pass out, but I come to on my back with my right heel in the air and go, Oh, I think something's wrong. And I can remember I was outside of my high school and I remember sitting there and going like, uh, I think something's wrong. And everyone's like, no, uh, oh, no, you'll be okay. You know, oh, mm. what? And it's like, hey, my heel's in the air. I was completely, you know, you're in such shock. Yeah. That you're just, I, you know something's wrong. But you're in shock. But, but I'm in such shock. And then all of a sudden everyone started to figure out. And it's like, oh, and they all freaked out. And I remember everybody else freaking out. And I was still pretty cool about it. But uh, that's why I go to the hospital. And I nearly lost my leg. And that was a huge 
moment for me uh, that I think really, I didn't realize it at the time. And I don't think you realize that kind of stuff at the time when you, when you have this very real, like, okay, so I'm not going to ride a bike. Maybe I'm not going to walk. Maybe I'm going to miss a leg. So you, you're just trying to pick up the pieces. But here I am. I can, I can lay around. I can watch a lot of cooking shows. And so here I'm watching, you know, one of the shows I watched was Emeril Lagasse, which ended up being one of my first. Yeah. I, I wrote the guy a letter. Really? Because I was taken with what he was doing. But I'm sta- I, mean, I was standing on crutches in front of a stove. My dad comes home and is, you know, I said, Dad, I need you to go to the store and get me. Um, I need gorgonzola <laughs> cheese. I need uh, this kind of dry-aged steak. And he's like, what? You know, I was watching too much TV. But that was my world for a little bit. But you're isolated. And all of a sudden now you're isolated and you're removed from, from all the things that you thought were normal. But it also, it really intensified my interest and, and I think my appreciation and learning about what ingredients and cooking were. And I really, the same way that I had delved into classic cycling at the beginning with my friend's father and was indoctrinated with that. This was my indoctrination into what the history of great cooking you know, in Europe, but also in America, really was about and, and paid attention to that. And so when Julia Child and Jacques and all these other people are referencing these great chefs, I'm like, who is that? You know, this is before you can just search anything, right? So you have right. to, like, actually do a little work, right? open some books. Um, it's amazing how powerful TV was to people your age. Yeah. You were young, very impressionable, you liked cooking, and suddenly the whole country is also becoming more interested in cooking and Julia, I mean, I started cooking because of Julia, basically. I, she made me want to go in and make an apple pie, and I was fourth grade. Right. So it's amazing how powerful that this, this TV can and, be. And that, I've realized over time, is what, what the power of sharing stories with people, because that's really what they were doing, is they are sharing what they knew. You know, they, when you would watch those shows, what was the most interesting was that they were sharing a bit about the things, the places they'd been, the things they'd done, the people they'd done them with, interspersed with those recipes. It wasn't just about the recipe, it was about the story. So luckily I wasn't good enough <laughs> and I stopped riding bikes and actually stopped riding bikes and became a chef or became a cook. So you left culinary school, you worked for a lot of very well-known chefs including we were talking about per se, you were an opening sous chef there. Mm-hmm. That was a big turning point for me in my career because at that point I, I had worked in a lot of great restaurants, but I'd never, wor- I'd never seen anything, I don't think that I ever will see anything like per- what per se was at that time. Um, which That was, caliber. I mean, the kitchen's bigger, the kitchen is bigger than most restaurants, you know, in multiples, right? Right. So the, it's an amazing kitchen, and, and and the amount of equipment, and but and it wasn't built. I mean, they 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 brought the stove into the building and then closed the curtain wall on the building, the Time Warner Center, oh. right? So it's like you know, there's nothing. Not, there wasn't. Wow. <laughs> that stove didn't come up in pieces. They used a crane and brought it in. Oh my God. Um, he he really knocked it out of the park for everybody there, in terms of what we had to work with. So what did you take away from that kitchen? That giving giving people the tools is the first step, right? That's always been, I mean, that's if you want to produce something really, really excellent and you give them the tools, then the race is on, you mm-hmm. know? But sort of asking people to, to go, you know, and people will follow you into hot lava if you give them the tools. And that doesn't mean you have to have the most ex- expensive kitchen. I mean, what I have here at SBQR is incredibly humble. The kitchen's a postage stamp. It's not 
you know, yeah, anything. But- the bathrooms, the bathrooms that per se are bigger than than my kitchen. <laughs> um, but I mean, look, I was looking at your saute pans. Those are they, ten years old. They, they they look brand new. Right. Elbow grease. Yeah. Uh, but that's beautiful. And, but that's a sign to me. And that's, that's a the sign of a away. kitchen. That's a sign of a, a chef who cares about what's important. And correct. And 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 that's what pride doesn't cost money. You know, pride is something you have inherent. And so when when you come into this space and you come into this kitchen, my takeaway from those kind of experiences was that you can run. Uh, you know, a taco truck, a burrito stand, a little Italian restaurant or a really, really big best in the world kind of restaurant. But the ethos to run all of them is pride and that you ply your craft, your trade in the best way possible and show people, give them the tools. And the tools aren't always physical. Sometimes they're mental, consistency. I mean, all those things all play into success. And so we, we shop for the raw ingredients, we apply the cooking techniques, we apply a philosophy, and we try to connect with actually serving people. And but and it's a, and it's, that's whether a taco truck or a Michelin three star uh, or a home kitchen. Even in a home kitchen, these rules apply or Correct. should apply. Yeah, good tools, good ingredients, and the best. You know, that's the amazing thing. You know, when you cook, you know, a lot of the most amazing food I've ever had is has been cooked for me by people's grandmas or mothers, right? And you look at those people and that it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, trajectory where you have this person that they use the same pot, the same ingredient, they go to the same store, they buy the same stuff, they make it the same way, then they do it for 30 years. Now walk into any restaurant kitchen and look for that. You got anyone who's been making the same gnocchi the same way on the same thing for 30 years? The accumulated wisdom within that process is insane. You get good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's what you're saying. But and that's the that is to me is the pure magic. You know, the pure magic. Because they don't who aspires to does my grandma aspire to make a be, a better or different version of that sauce? Absolutely not. She she made that. Right. Right. Yeah. And so it was became but within that is the consistency, which is king. In a professional kitchen, in a home kitchen as well. But I mean, you know, your favorite dishes that anyone ever made for you, you went back for them. What if they were different? I mean, that, this is the whole point. This is why we measure our recipes in grams. I mean, this, right. is the, this is the whole, this is why we understand ratio. This is why we, all this stuff is, is an effort at consistency. You're trying to create an environment with the, all the tools that you need that you can do that. Then Matthew discovered, through his Italian elders, a kind of foraging that was simply a part of life and cooking in Italy. Going and visiting my family who still live in Puglia. Oh, really? Um, and we would go to my Aunt Colombina's olive ranch on, on this beautiful windswept hillside overlooking the Adriatic and with surrounded by um, pomegranates and blood oranges and sunshine and olives and all these things. But then they would say, well, we're going to make... Um, let's make lunch. And then they go, it's like, we have to go to the wild caper bush and get these leaves. And we have to go to the carob tree and get this. And we have to go get this wild arugula and this wild fennel and all these things. And then, so that was my first, and I was like, so I don't understand. I thought like, do you have to plant food and then get it? <laughs> you know, so if there's, if it's not in this, like this strip of dirt that you said was, you know, your farm, then you, but that was a revelation to me at that. And I think I was all 22. But then you're in a professional kitchen, you start to go, oh, wait, but like, 
these black trumpet mushrooms, oh, you can't grow those. These ramps, you can't grow. I mean, nature grows. Nature grows them and you go get them, right? So that's foraging. But in a way, fishing is foraging, right? Hunting is foraging. I mean, all, you're, you're going out and you're, you're, it's a nonspecific. Right, you're finding wild things. Correct. And so if you look, the, this concept of foraging is all around us. And I think what John George got onto, what, you know, Renee really popularized for a whole generation of cooks that I see come through my kitchen now is this notion that um, wild food is all around us for the taking. Happily, Matthew has been able to ride bikes again from San Francisco to L.A. and even competitively. But daily, he rides with an eye trained on the plants that he passes on the roads and trails through Golden Gate Park and as far north as the Napa Valley. For me, competitively riding bicycles again means I spend 15 hours a week on a bicycle. I have, I have a lot of scenery to take in in that period of time. So I, I know where all these spots are. I endlessly transit at a much slower speed. And what we don't realize is in a car, we're going so fast and we're so focused and then necessarily so on some things I had done on a bicycle, it's a bit slower. And the repetitive nature of the courses and all these things I do, which is very similar to kitchen life where there's repetition. Mm -hmm. But I, I see this stuff. And so I see the arugula, I see, I see the geranium, I see the, the wild onion flowers, I see the wood sorrel, and I know where the patches are, where the things are. And I connect to that and literally will go through and communicate with my sous chefs who all living in a city as well. We're all on bicycles going back and forth to work because it's really the... Nobody's driving. I mean, if you're driving, you're late <laughs> in San Francisco. Right. Um, I don't think any differently about foraging than I do about going to the farmer's market or working with any other purveyor that I work with to gather things. And if I'm going in, we harvested bags full of nasturtium flowers this morning. And if I pay someone for those, the cost of those nasturtium flowers to pay, that then is passed on to my customer. But I don't know that knowing how many there are out there, what costs so much. Because it's not the desertion flowers, so they don't cost anything. They're just there. Right. Right. So it's, it, it's either our time to acquire them or the ability. And so a lot of the foraging thing is about getting fresh ingredients into the kitchen in the quantity that you need and then utilizing them for what you want to and trying to be inspired by that. But also for you, I've, as a chef, and you know, you're not getting all your produce by yourself and gathering, but still it's, it's, it must feel to you a connection to the earth and to the world that you live in, bringing food from the hills around you into your restaurant and serving your customer. Yeah, and I think it's a philosophical thing for me. I'm, I'm one of six kids in a family. I rarely got, you know, the first shot at a pair of clothes, you know, it was kind <laughs> of a hand-me-down. And, and I work with Peter Jacobson up up in Yountville, um, who was Thomas's original farmer. And, and, you know, the French Laundry and the cadre of restaurants there in Yountville still pull from that farm. So if I go on that farm and I'm looking for figs, Bouchon Bakery's got them. French Laundry's got them. You know, I'm not the first person in line for that fig, I don't think, mm -hmm. uh, especially because they can walk over and get them before I can get there, right? <laughs> Here I am 60 miles away. So Peter brings me stuff, but the, but the, rea the reality is that I've looked for the opportunity. So I've, and the opportunity, fig leaves. So we use a ton of fig leaves. We make fig leaf gelato, fig leaf custards, all, infuse oh, them in all kinds of things. We've used mm -hmm. them to wrap things. There's that is zero value. I can harvest five garbage bags of fig leaves in two minutes. Right. And, no, and there's no competition for that. My perspective is all about harvesting opportunity. 
And, and so I'm constantly scanning my ingredients and, and how I'm cooking and all those things and looking for the opportunities within them mm-hmm. for utilization, for flavor, for drawing things into my cooking and into how I'm, how I'm dealing with being a chef. We went and got the New Zealand spinach this morning. And I mean, I can buy cultivated spinach by the pounds and by the bag. Um, and to make, you know, extract chlorophyll from it or saute it or turn it into pasta dough or gnocchi or whatever it's going to be. But this New Zealand spinach is really hearty and it wears, it wears a bit of, uh, it stores almost like ice plants, stores a bit of its moisture and structure on its exterior, really. It almost looks like crystals and gives it, gives you this firmer texture, but it also it feels really fresh. But we actually make an nasturtium pesto and, and fold it in with burrata cheese and then put it in a canister and charge it and, and aerate it and serve it with summer squash and nasturtium pesto and all the nasturtium flowers and bring that. So, but pe- pesto, I mean, pesto is just pounded, right? So it's a technique. So I learned how to make basil pesto. I understood it. Mm-hmm. I understood what, what had to be in there. And I understood that nuts could be optional, that maybe cheese could be optional, that I could add other things. So it became this paste, this herb paste that, that had flavor. And so we make this assertion pesto. We don't put nuts in it. Um, we put a little basil in it, but not much, frankly. And, and But we've made it with wild arugula. We've changed it. So that, that's like, again, learning the rule so you can break it. Matthew walks the walk, making use of all he can, and it's highlighted by his love of pasta fillings, something all cooks can and should take note of. Being in a utilization-focused kitchen, pasta filling is like a diamond for mm-hmm. utilization. I mean, because you can take all the short rib trim and all of the mushroom trim and add flavor to that and bring it into this filling that's not terribly attractive. It looks like, you know, a puree of ingredients. Right. So what are you gonna do with it? Now, once I put it inside pasta, that's like, now it's sexy, right? So, right. <laughs> and so like, this is basically flat pasta. Flat pasta, and then we cover it. And then we roll it, and then we poach it, and then we bake it. And so you have this, Basically, perfect hockey puck on top of it. Nice golden brown slices of seared porcini mushrooms, porcini in the filling, and then a little light bechamel next to it. But so it really looks very elegant, mm-hmm. looks really polished, but the flavor is really, really good. You can forage all you want, utilize all you want, clean your pots every night till they look brand new. But if the food doesn't taste good, it's all for naught. Chef's food and that of his staff was fabulous. When we come back, we'll talk with an uncommon kind of forager, a man named Todd Pesek. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 
2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. I'm Dr. Todd Pesek. I am a fourth generation Appalachian root doctor who went to medical school. I get asked often, you know, are you a real doctor? And (laughs) I usually ask back the question, well, what is a real doctor? Modern medicine is relatively new, right? And the primary tool that we've really had have been plants in the plant world. Todd Pesek, his name is spelled P-E-S-E-K graduated magna cum laude from Northeastern University with a degree in biochemistry and earned his medical degree from Ohio State University and the Cleveland Clinic. But his passion has been to travel to remote areas of the world, biodiversity hotspots, to study longevity and the teachings of the elders of these communities who do not rely on traditional Western medicine. I've spent um, cumulative years in, in Belize and Guatemala and Peru and, uh, you know, the Napa Forest eco-regions of those areas. I've traveled throughout India, the Western Ghats. I, mean, well, I want to make it clear for the audience that you were, you've been to very remote places that you've spoken to tribal groups, tribal elders, uh, to learn what they know, what they've known and learned over centuries, if not millennia. Yeah, 
the ecosphere or our biosphere is threatened with rainforest resource exploitation and exchange and deforestation and so on and so forth. People are aware of that, and, and obviously we need to be proactive in, in shifting that. But what people are less um, aware of is the fact that the ethnosphere is disappearing even more rapidly than the ecosphere. And what the ethnosphere is, is humanity's diverse understanding and appreciation of and ability to utilize the natural world, you know, harmoniously, um, sustainably coexist in the natural world. And I I selected my research sites internationally on the basis of them being both biodiversity hotspots, so areas that were in need of intense intervention to preserve the natural areas, but also um, that still had um, traditions and the ethnosphere intact. And really what that comes down to, Michael, is mountainous areas in the world. That are hard to get so, to. That are hard to get to or from. Exactly. Yeah. And so my journeys and, and research brought me into all of the backwood areas of rural Appalachia to you know the Maya Mountains, highlands of Belize and Guatemala to the Andean highlands of Peru and um, the Amazonian backwaters, blackwaters areas of, of Amazonia. Dr. Todd, what I admire so much about that is that you're trying to gather the collective wisdom of various ethnospheres and bring them all together to see what we can learn. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Todd did all this while he was still in medical school. The school was aware of this and asked him to give a talk to the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic about plants and medicine in these remote regions. He had never presented much of anything before to a group of doctors, let alone the long-coated august head staff at one of the most notable hospitals in the world. He was in his mid-twenties and practically shitting his pants, he said, when he stood before the group. He was so nervous. And uh, the title of my presentation was Plants, People, and Global Healing. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I walked in, you know, the, the you can imagine an auditorium of medical doctors with their stethoscopes yeah, and long white coats. Clinic. These and, are some of the best doctors in the, in the land. Absolutely, yeah. And one of them stood up and he said, you know, I don't believe in herbs. And he started to leave. Gets up, starts heading out. I said, you know, doctor, we're all entitled to our own opinions. But before you leave, I have a question for you. He turned around and, and I said, um, when's the last time you've administered a patient morphine? And the physician, being a pain management doctor and an anesthesiologist, actually started to chuckle, um, realizing that you know morphine came from a plant. His colleague started to chuckle, and he actually sat back down and grew into being one of my bigger supporters throughout medical school. And I, I like to tell that story because it's it's really illustrative of the fact that people are you know willing to learn; they are open minded if the timing is right. <laughs> Much of modern medicine comes from ethnobotanical leads and or the plant world. Modern medical blockbuster drugs come from plants. For example, you know, our first line treatment for diabetes in modern medicine is metformin, which is a, a botanical derivative from French lilac. And, you know, the list goes on from the painkillers to the cardiac glycosides, the heart medications, blood pressure medications, you know, you name it. Uh, Dr. Todd, tell my wonderful listeners how we met. <laughs> <laughs> we met in the woods. I met Dr. Todd in Cleveland while working on a book called Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America, using a family grocery chain, Heinen's, as my anchor for the story. 
One of the chief executives of this grocery store, two dozen stores in Cleveland and Chicago with sales of around $650 million, Chris Foltz, he told me the story of how he met Dr. Todd. Todd had a holistic medical practice in Cleveland where the grocery chain I was writing about is based. One of the managers of their wellness section looked for holistic doctors in the area, called Todd out of the blue to ask if he'd give a presentation at one of their stores. Todd was a fan of Heinen's and said, sure. The manager and the marketing director were so impressed, they pleaded with Foltz, basically the COO under Jeff and Tom Heinen, to meet with Dr. Todd. Here's what Foltz told me upon seeing Dr. Todd in the lobby of the Heinen's headquarters. I thought, this will be a short meeting. He had a Peruvian pullover on, kind of like a combo sweatshirt poncho, some baggy beige work pants like a mechanic might wear, and some of those hippie Sanic canvas shoes. And of course, there was the ponytail, a 35-year-old hippie with a medical degree. Two hours later, Chris told me, we ended the meeting and were setting up our next. Three months later, we contracted with him to be our chief medical officer. That was 10 years ago. Dr. Todd Pesek may well be the first chief medical officer of a grocery store ever. Naturally, I wanted to talk to him. He asked me to meet not at his offices, but rather in the Cleveland Metro Parks, called the Emerald Necklace, miles of forested land that encircle Greater Cleveland. He wanted to meet in the woods so that I could get a true sense of him, he said. Again, from that walk, Todd explained it this way. What happens is, Picture this in winter. It's snow. If you were living like our ancestors, the first thing that happens is the running of the sap. You drink the sugary goodness after a winter of nothing. And the first things that come up are the alliums, wild garlic, the ramps, wood leeks. Here are some seeds. He bent to pick up ramp berries and seeds and hands them to me. Alliums upregulate your body's detoxification systems. They're rich in sulfides, they're antibacterial, and a kidney and liver cleanse. Then you start to see the reducers. These are like the spring tonics, toothworts, the diuretics, detoxifying. He spotted a large patch of low-growing plant with delicate lavender flowers. Right here is one of the best. It's wild geranium. And then you roll into summer when food abounds. He paused to quote Thoreau. The fields and the forest are a table always spread. As you move into fall, he went on, antiparasitic plants abound. And then you roll back into the famine of winter. Your dietary focus shifts to mineral-laden root veggies, things that are underground and things you've gathered, tree nuts and seeds and dried legumes. Hickory, beech nut, acorns are all edible. Chestnuts used to be a staple until the chestnut blight decimated the landscape and food supply. Our ancestors ate plants, and when in famine, they ate animals that ate plants. But that's more rare than people realize. He stopped to look around. Everything here has a purpose. And I fed you sassafras, and that's what I remember. <laughs> you also fed me nettles, stinging nettles. I did. And you said this is the way the Druids did it. That's correct. Now, how did you know the Druids did it that way? Well, most people that eat nettles and wood nettles, um, you know, evolved ways of doing it without stinging their tongues. <laughs> and uh, uh, why is sassafras good? And wh why should we know about it? Why should we care? Why should I know to be able to isolate it in a metro park of a major American city? 
Why should I know about stinging nettles? Food and medicinal benefits. The main topic of this podcast of foraging, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you see all these different foraging resources and, you know, there's chefs foraging here and foraging there and, you know, foragers foraging for chefs and all these, these different things that are, that are great. I mean, we're starting to connect people more to what I believe, you know, is really the diverse history of humanity. Think about foraging as a luxury kind of a thing now, but in fact, it, it's not, and it never was. It's really a necessity. It's millennia of shared learning in the natural world that have enabled our species to figure out what is edible, what is nutritive, what is medicinal, what can hurt you, what can kill you. There's like 400,000 species of plants out there, and most of them are edible in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a root, a shoot, a tuber. And sometimes one has to do certain things to it to make it more edible, palatable, or even non-poisonous. For example, in your book, you allude to nixtamalization process in the preparation of, you know, of corn. So a lot of these plants out there have to be prepared in the right way. Dr. Todd is referring to how dried corn was mixed with ash in Mexico, now we use lime, to release the skin of the corn and make all vitamins accessible to us. This is the corn we know as hominy and gives us grits and pozzoli. Without the nixtamalization, we can't digest its nutrients. But Todd, as a physician, is primarily focused not on a delicious corn stew, but treating disease. Chronic disease burden is largely driven by inflammation. And two of the major constructs that drive that inflammation are sugar and fat. So too much sugar, too much fat, sugar toxicity and fat toxicity. When you think about the fat aspect, it's too much fat, period, and then too much of the wrong fat and not, and not enough of the good fat, the right fat. And really what it comes down to are essential fats, omega fats, the three, six, and nine. The threes and the sixes are essential. And um, our ancestors ate them in equal portions traditionally, you know, equal part threes, equal part sixes. Modern man and woman are consuming more along the lines of one part threes, 30 part sixes. This was later confirmed to me by an internal medicine physician at the Cleveland Clinic, Roxanne Sukal, with whom I strolled the grocery store. When we got to the oil aisle, this is what she said. Before the 20th century, people ate a one-to-one -one ratio of threes to sixes. But now, because the processed food industry is based on seed oil, the standard diet is 15 or 20 to one of sixes to threes. And if you're a kid living off fast food, that ratio is as high as 40 to one. So there's pretty good thinking that the omega-6 predominant diet is partly responsible for all these autoimmune and anti-inflammatory diseases. So that's why I don't eat any of these seed oils. I'm getting what I need in the edamame and in the nuts. You don't have to go out of your way to measure this. You just have to eat food, and it takes care of itself. But a huge aid in all of this, Michael, are the diverse bounty of phytochemicals and in particular secondary plant metabolites in all of those 400,000 species of plants, most of which are edible in some way, shape, or form. On any one given day, anywhere, there are forageable, edible plant stuffs you know, that have nutrient density profiles that aren't in more conventional kind of grocery. What would you like to see chefs foraging for what kind of stuff would you like to see them foraging and figuring out ways to get on their menus 
I love the fact that chefs are utilizing their acumen and their abilities to connect people, you know, to the planet in in meaningful ways by illustrating wild foods and foraging. And I'd like to see them um, also follow those aspects of foraging that teach how to be a conservationist and um, teach people to know specifically what they're gathering and, you know, respecting the native populations of plants. And I do see some out there doing that. And it's really great. A good example of what I'm trying to say here is um, another recipe that you talk about in From Scratch, which I think is a beautifully done book, Michael. It's really wonderful. Um, um, I, I really like the curry section. Curry is, as you allude to in the book, is this amorphous kind of term that really means a diverse variety of things from a collection of spices to sauces or whatever. But you know, the fact of the matter is curries are all over the place. And a traditional description of a curry, one thinks of turmeric, ginger, pepper, you know, those kind of things. But there are there are other curries. There's mestizo curries. There's Creole curries. There's uh, Jamaican jerk curries. There's cur- there's curries here in this neck of the woods. Our native Appalachian curries um, are just as much intoxicating to the senses as a Thai green curry or you know an Indian forward front coriander cumin curry. What's an Appalachian curry? There, there are a lot of different plants. You know, I've had curries with mixtures of a hundred or more herbs and spices. And one of the main ones that we use here is spice bush. And Todd had found some on our walk, along with the sassafras and nettles and Solomon's seal and wild geranium and squirrel corn and jack in the pulpit was spice bush, found throughout the Northeast and Midwest and Southern United States. At the time, they were small green berries. I crushed them between my fingers, and they smelled like lime leaves. Come fall, they will have grown, turned red, and take on a flavor like allspice, which Todd will harvest and grind for his own seasoning. And the reason I wanted to mention spice bush is because it's a good example of of what I'm talking about in terms of the subtlety of flavors and the shifting temporally of possibilities. You know, the spice bush, for example, if you want the pepper forward flavors of the berries, you harvest them early in the summer when they're green and you dry them, as opposed to the latter seasonal harvest where the seed is more fully mature and it has more of the allspice connotation to it. So my point is you can make curry or that blend of spices from any neck of the woods with the correct wherewithal. It can seem a little complicated and confusing to folks. Is it as complicated as all this? I would tell people who want to get interested or um, you know involved in foraging, don't ever eat anything you don't know. And so you, the way you do that is you go out with people that know and, and you start to learn. Um, there's a whole series of ways that you could begin to broaden your knowledge. But greens tend to be really easy. Last question I want to hear from you is what are you cooking now? What am I cooking now? Yeah, what are you nothing. cooking these days? Nothing. Because it's January? I do some cleansing this time of year, coming off the holidays and the richness of the food and all of that kind of stuff, which is really a wonderful time of year for me. And I kind of settle into some deep, nurturative broths. As I kick off my, my big January cleanse on Monday, I'm preparing, I call it my super broth. And it's got literally a hundred different things in it. And uh, a lot of that stuff is from wild harvesting, 
year round. So you'll do, how long will you cleanse for? The whole month, three weeks, three and a half weeks. Just broth, any solids? Um, sometimes I'll do herbal teas that do honor and pay homage to the liver, right? They call it a liver for a reason. Um, <laughs> not called a dyer. You got to love your liver. <laughs> yeah. So what do we want to eat to help our, to help our liver? What kind of what types of foods? After this well, your holiday. greens in general that are more rich in sulfur and sulfur-based compounds, um, that's all of your brassica, that's your cabbage, that's your, I mean, realize that that's really all the same plant. I mean, from kale to cabbage to collard to cauliflower to broccoli, which are just immature inflorescences of the plant. It's relatively similar across the board and you know, a little bit of fermentation to that will help tremendously. But anyway, those Plants have within them plant phytochemicals and compounds that enable your liver to produce the most powerful antioxidants that your body uses to stay healthy. Part of the problem with modern day health issues really stem from a lack of that. I mean, people are rushing here and rushing there and scarfing down this and that and the other. There's you know a lack of a reverence. Just the simple process of sitting down, present with your plate of food. I mean. The digestive process starts with smelling and then salivating, and then salivation actually precedes chewing to emulsify the food with salivary amylase and lipase, which really start breaking down food. You know, I had a one wise elder; he laughed and he's like, "Chew once for every tooth in your mouth." And you know, of course, there's he only had one tooth, but he was 106. (laughs) There's some wisdom to that, right? I don't know. I love that guy. He's published his ideas and recipes in a book called Eat Yourself Super, a superfoods journey for the happy, healthy, and hungry. And he gives a version of his super broth on page 115. And it's really your basic veg stock on steroids. Todd's will have things like spice bush berries in his, but his recipe for non-foragers includes one red medium onion, one medium white onion, two carrots, eight celery stalks, eight cloves garlic, a daikon radish, a butternut or other winter squash, a medium zucchini, a medium yellow squash, if it's in summer, Spanish black radish, medium gold or red beet, a turnip, roots and tops, a bunch of kale, one bunch parsley, one bunch cilantro, one half bunch rainbow shard, one half bunch mustard greens, one half cup dried seaweed, one half small red cabbage, one half small green cabbage, one lemon cut in half, one thumb-sized piece of ginger minced, two teaspoons turmeric, one cup dried maitake or shiitake mushrooms, a tablespoon of sea salt, a teaspoon of black pepper, and two cayenne peppers. Simmer that for an hour, strain, and you've got your super broth. You can also eat the vegetables afterwards. You can even dehydrate them. It's a fabulous broth. When we come back, we'll talk with Nancy McNamara of the Honey Locust Farm in Newburgh, New York. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com with the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. They call it biophilia, the joy of being with plants. In Newburgh, New York, an hour north of New York City, Nancy McNamara still lives and cooks in her childhood home, a yellow-sided two-story house with a brick foundation and a bright red front door, wood-burning stoves outside and in her rustic kitchen. May I ask, how old are you? Um, 70-something. So that generation... That generation, I'm a bona fide baby boomer, (laughs) (laughs) for sure. Foraging's a major, a major thing, Um, and always has been, and and probably always will. Always has been. Always has been. Since you were a girl. Yeah, but I didn't know it. So I used to play in the yard all day. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was a, a charter member of the Newburgh Garden Club. And I used to follow her around and plant pansies and whatnot, you know. And my folks were always working close by. They were farmers. They, were they and and farmers. Uh, my dad raised crops, and then farmers would bring crops from the surrounding area. So I got to know everybody in the neighborhood. And when I was like nine, ten years old, I got a pony, and then I I began to ride around the neighborhood. You rode around this neighborhood. I Doesn't rode. Like I it. I well. 
that was a long time ago, you know. <laughs> and and there was no, there, there were few houses, and every, all my neighbors were farmers. There was oh. no suburban. It was rural. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, um, no, I, I just had a very intimate relationship with the, with the natural world, and I kind of roamed around and, and had my lunch out. <laughs> I knew where the best plums and peaches and pears were, you know, as the season uh, revolved. I used to make salads, salad for my dollies. <laughs> In the summer, Nancy's childhood home is surrounded by trees and greens, hoop houses and wild edibles. When I arrived in late fall, it looked all but deserted. The hoop houses barren, mere feet from the Route 9 traffic lights, shopping marts and gas stations. The greenery reduced to ground cover. But even here, hardy edibles flourished. Nancy began to explain the most essential plants in the yard. Why are those important? Because they are used as, as stimulants to produce rich soil. You know, they, they work with, with the cosmos to stimulate action in, in compost. I'll show you the books. You can read them yourself. <laughs> I'd like to. Um, you know, I'm not the best uh, uh, wordsmith uh, for explaining all these things. That's In college, Nancy studied mythology. One of her favorites was the green man. Found in many cultures, this green man's face was covered with leaves, which in some versions represented languages. To me, he represents the fertility of the earth. Nancy kept this inspiration and decided to give me plants to taste rather than explaining what they were. She quickly found a surprising number of options within feet of where we were standing outside her front door. I can forage anything right here, right as we speak. I can see ground ivy. This is the ground ivy right here. If you taste it, it's got kind of goat cheesy kind of taste. And, and there's a patch of nettles Show over me. there. Nettles, you have to blanch them first because you don't want to get your mouth all tingly. And when I'm feeling gnarly, I come out and pick them <laughs> with my bare hands. Otherwise, I use uh, a, a rubber glove. These are all uh, culinary herbs, herbs here. Uh -huh. This is right here is uh, rhubarb. Good one. This is, gar this is garlic mustard. That's probably violet. Okay. But you can eat the leaves and the and the flowers and also the roots of the violet. This is, this is motherwort. Mm, it's bitter. It is bitter. And I use motherwort a lot because huh. it relieves minor anxiety. Really? And it's really important. Wow. Does. I'm going to pick some before I go here. Well. <laughs> and with many of these plants, she makes tinctures. You just kind of steep the herb in alcohol for like six weeks, and, and all the constituents come out in the alcohol. Sometimes other things. It's like making bitters. Sort of. It's all, you know, it's all like ancient stuff. <laughs> I, even, I even make a heart wine from, from a recipe by Hildegard von Bingen. She was like a 12th century uh, uh, abbess. And you said it was a heart it's, it's a heart wine. I wine. have some inside. I'll show you. Made from what? It, well, that's the secret formula. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and is there a heart in it? 
No, no, oh. it's it's for your oh, heart. For, it doesn't have heart. heart in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's made from the hawthorn berries, and they regulate your heartbeat up or down. I mean, your blood pressure up or down, and they really it, it help steady your heartbeat. Really? And it's really a wonderful uh, thing. Wow. Is there anything that could hurt you if you went out and ate it that was growing? Well, there's a few things, but really not that much. There are things that you could learn about the physiology of the plants that could tip you off. Hmm. Like um, many of the plants we ingest have square stems. Mm -hmm. and um, That's a good sign. That's a good sign. What are some other signs? Well, the gestures gestures of the plants. What do you mean by gestures? Sometimes they have thorns that kind of tips you off right away to <laughs> don't mess with me. So you just can't go out willy-nilly. Right. You, you can't do anything willy-nilly. That's kind of a big mistake no matter what you do. Her farm got its name from the honey locust tree, a giant centuries-old tree with rough bark and dried pods weighing down the old branches. The, the honey locust is actually a legume. Oh, really? It's, but it is, it's, it's an incredible tree. A fat, huge tree. And his name was Nathaniel Barnes. He moved here in 1828 to build the road, 9W, uh -huh. which pa used to pass right in front here for oh, the house. Really? So they probably stuck this uh, uh, a post in the ground to tether their horse, uh -huh. and it just started growing. Wow. And yeah. that was to, and that was 1828, so that's like almost 200 years ago. And those tiny pods attract hungry visitors. Animals love them. Huh. I used to have goats, and when they got out, I used to find them out here grazing. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> some guy from Alabama called me up one time to buy some pods because he wanted to put them in his corn patch so he could catch, catch the wild boars oh, that really? were eating his corn. Oh, really? So you could use them as bait. <laughs> Through her mother and father's Jacksbury farm, Nancy had developed a relationship with the Alsatian chef. I was working with John George and growing um, specialty produce, especially mescaline mix. It wasn't very long before John George asked me to start foraging for him. It was then, in 1997, that John George sensed foraging was an exciting opportunity few American diners were familiar with. So they came up here and we walked around and we did a, we did a, um, you know, a weed walk and they photographed everything that they wanted me to produce. After her work with Jean-Georges, Nancy found her niche as a supplier of great plants to top chefs in New York City. I worked with the Culinary Institute and I worked with quite a number of other chefs in Manhattan and I think I was probably one of the first farm-to-tables. And as things progressed, I got better at it. Having an art background, my presentations were so lovely. You know, <laughs> my, my herbs came in bouquets, and, and that made it really easy for chefs to, you know, explore the possibilities mm -hmm. and create their, their cuisine. Uh, one of the first chefs that really delved into the into the ephemera of springtime was a Paul Lebrant. Things uh, for his plates and little flowers and culinary herbs have gorgeous little flowers that mm -hmm. are very aromatic. Yeah. So we did a lot of those. For Grey Coons, 
I think I foraged the milkweed pods. Who knows? What do you do with a milkweed pod? I think you make like a pancake. <laughs> Wiley Dufresne asked me to grow spilanthes for him because it has the property of making your tongue kind of numb and tingly. And I used to grow edible flowers, all kinds. Mm -hmm. So uh, between the things that I grew and the things that I foraged, I was able to um, provide a lot of produce. Where would you where would you do your foraging, and what would you find? Well, I had to learn where to look for things. Like one year, John George wanted to encrust his lamb with garlic mustard, mm -hmm. and garlic mustard um, is has the incredible ability has something similar to antifreeze and in it in the leaves uh -huh. so that you know even as the weather gets cold you could um you know use the leaves and they would be fresh and green huh. and so um i was out there foraging in the snow sometimes really um another time he wanted sassafras so i had to scout sassafras and really whereabouts all around R around the woods, this house around the house in the woods down the street up on the my dad's farm Anywhere along, you know. Just walking around. Just walking around in orchards, wherever. But things took a physical turn for Nancy, very likely the result of all her foraging. And, and I can't remember everything, you know, because of the because of the, the Lyme disease, sometimes I have lapses. So if I don't I can't find a word, that's why. How long how long did you have? When did you when were you diagnosed with Lyme I, disease? I had in a long time and I, I thought I was just getting old. Uh -huh. You know. And then in, in uh, 2009, somebody said, how are you? And I said, not so good. When I first noticed I had a tick bite on me, I'd go and, and get the prescription for the antibiotic. I took it. That was it. You know, I thought I was good, good to go. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, after a while, when I started having these symptoms. What are the symptoms? Oh, there are too many to, to, to name. To it could, wherever your body's weak, that's where they. It that's attacks. where they attack you. If you like, if you over <clears throat> strain your muscles, it's going to attack your muscles or your bones. I mean, I would be driving to the city, and the pain would be so bad mm. that I I would be in tears. And then I'd make my deliveries, and and during the night I'd have pains that would shoot up and down my arms and my legs. And I I asked people, what is this? What is this? Nobody had any answers. I don't think they knew a whole lot about it at the time. No. Now they know more. But I had to find out for myself. When I couldn't work anymore, I didn't have any other means of, you know, making a living. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have any health insurance. Mm. So I never went to a regular doctor. You figured it out on your own. I had to. And everybody told me I was crazy and it was all in my head and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't. Nancy eventually read every book she could find on the subject. Before I arrived, she spread a half dozen across her kitchen table, such as The Secret Teachings of Plants and Sacred Agriculture, The Alchemy of Biodynamics. Eventually, she settled on several regular plant medicines from her studies of ancient healing methods. It's a satis, 
It is um, Chinese woad. It's a dye plant. They used to use it for indigo. And this one is Espelanthes acamila. That's the tingly plant she grew for Chef Dufresne's psychedelic tasting menu. So he got the seeds from Madagascar. So really? he planted them and they turned out to be medicinal. And, and by the way, it's also reputed to raise your testosterone level. So <laughs> it can't be all bad, huh? And, and the other one is Hotunia. Uh, the chameleon plant, but these are um, traditional Chinese medicine, and um, and they and they work. How do you? How much do you take? How do you take them? Oh, I take a dropper full in the morning, huh. and that seems to keep it, you know, on the on the level. I mean, this is all ancient stuff that we've forgotten about. Because what did people have back in in ancient times? They certainly didn't have pharmacies and doctors. Maybe they had. You know, Hippocrates, you know, and he said that your food is your medicine. And mm -hmm. I believe he was right because it is for me. The thing is that many of the books that I have, there are so many different takes on the same thing that I have to read a bunch of them. And by consensus, I figure out how, how to use things. Nancy explained that her mother is considering selling the house rather than saddling her daughter with a tax burden she wouldn't be able to afford. I'm hoping that we can save this farm uh, for posterity through some kind of um, perhaps historic preservation, but we'll see. What do they want to do now? They want to um, make this a condo uh, with a, a food store, Trader Joe's or Cumberland Farm. Tear down this house and... Tear down the real farm and put up a quasi-farm. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's altogether too sad. Well, it's just a joke, you know. It's the way of the world. Things go funny that way, and I guess we just have to laugh and move on. I use these herbs on a daily basis. What am I going to do if I'm not here on this property? But I guess I don't really need my soil. I love my soil. I've been with the soil for so long and I've enriched it and I've tested it and I know this soil. The thing is that the soil is like the cells of our body. It, it has a life. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't used to know about the microbiome, but now we know. If you look under a microscope at your cells, you'll see all the things wiggling around, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's all your cells all the time. So the form of your body is not fixed. It's always in flux and it's always flowing. So that concept kind of, you know, wow, blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the truth. Now we know about our microbiomes mm -hmm. and we know how important that is to our health and our nutrition and all of our systems. Mm -hmm. But but to but to think about the fact that that all of our cells are are just all of this part of this thing like the soil. Our bodies are like the our soil. Bo our bodies are just like the soil. There's no difference between working in the garden and producing health in your body. It's a really the same thing. And that's a very spiritual idea. I just want to teach everybody that, that they can go back to, to farming and foraging and, and just growing whatever they need in whatever soil they have, even if it's on their terrace. Chef Matthew knows it and brings it to his restaurant every day. Dr. Todd uses this knowledge to treat his patients and feed his family. 
and Nancy hopes to ease her fellow septuagenarians into a healthy old age while also supplying America's great restaurants. Thank you, each and all. Matthew Acarino for the delicious food at his restaurant, SBQR in San Francisco. If you're ever in town, go check out his menu filled with ingredients that may even be picked from the sidewalk in front of the restaurant. Thank you, Dr. Todd Pesek. Check out his book and his teachings in Eat Yourself Super. And thanks, too, to Nancy McNamara at Honey Locust Farm. Not only for the tour of her childhood land, her wisdom, but also for her amazing nettle pesto. It was fantastic. Thanks, Nancy. My new book is out now. It's also called From Scratch, but it's all about cooking and 10 meals that can teach us all we need to know in the kitchen. We'll have a link to it on the show notes and on my site, ruleman.com. From Scratch, the podcast is produced by Jonathan Haas Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. The music is by Ryan Scott off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.